Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. For many years, John O'Burgess simultaneously edited a magazine and threw parties, and it's clear he viewed the roles as being interchangeable. Jockey Slut became known as a source of forward-thinking electronic music, whose irreverent tone set it apart from the rest of the UK dance press. This was mirrored by his bugged out parties, which gave early exposure to acts like Daft Punk, The Chemical Brothers, and Kashmir, and helped lay the foundation for the techno scene in the UK as we know it today. Bugged Out held key residencies at Sankey's Soap in Manchester, The Nation in Liverpool, and The End in London. During this time, it formed close bonds with acts like Errol Alkin, Dave Clark, Miss Kitten, and Tiga, who came to represent the very essence of the party. These days, Bugged Out is a London-based operation with a far-reaching range of events and an annual weekender. Ryan Keeling sat down with Burgess and Charlotte Hotham to reflect on a successful two decades in dance music. Jono, uh, before there was Bugged Out, there was Jockey Slut. Um, I thought a good place to start would be to have you explain a little bit about the magazine and kind of uh, how the whole thing came about. Uh, yeah, Jockey Slut was a magazine I started with Paul Benny. Um, we were both at Manchester University and um, when we sort of left university, I stayed on as editor of the university magazine and um, Jockey Slut sort of, we did in our spare time using all their facilities. Um, and yeah, it's kind of like a hobby, sort of slash, what the hell are we going to do with our lives kind of thing. Um, and from literally from issue one, it kind of started to connect with people. We used to like only do we distribute it around the record shops in Manchester, and then I think issue two, we took it to Birmingham and Liverpool and posted it to Glasgow. And uh, yeah, the feedback was just very strong, pretty much straight away, because I think we we hit a niche that was there at the time that wasn't being filled by the other magazines. Which was? Um, there was Mixmag and DJ, but they were quite different back then. Mixmag was very club culture based, um, less artist led. DJ was very about DJ t- technology and, and less, a, less you know, about features about the actual um, artists and what music they were making and sort of what. People used to talk about what knobs they twiddled back then, how they made the music as opposed to who they were as people. And I think we had quite a rock approach in a way to it because we grew up on. The enemy and select and the face. So I think I think we interviewed DJs as people rather than how did you make that record. And I think that's why Jockey Slut was quite different. I mean, do you think that was because there was still uh, something of a mystery surrounding the creation of the music? Yeah, I mean, it's still really new. I mean, we're talking this is five years after Acid House, nineteen ninety three. So people still didn't even think the scene would last and. Enemy still hadn't had any electronic acts on their cover, really. I think I think about six months after Jockey Slut started, they had LFO on the cover, smashing guitars up in some kind of weird statement. It's the only way they could get their heads around it was to still have a guitar on the cover, even though it's being smashed up. So yeah, it was um, it's just a very different time. But we also 
we also arrived at a time when it, it was becoming more artist-based. Um, the Chemical Brothers were starting to evolve. Daft Punk, in our first year, you know, put out their first press release. Underworld were obviously a fully formed band. Um, so there's a lot for us to write about. I mean, from your perspective, um, were there people kind of going out and listening to this music across the country? Yeah, I mean, uh, weirdly, one of the first kind of nationwide um, touring clubs was Megadog, which had quite a crusty reputation. But they did put on people at Underworld and Andrew Weatherall, and uh, and that was massive in Manchester. Um, the Hacienda was still big in Manchester, but it didn't really cover the kind of music that Jockey Slut did. So we used to have to go to, you know, yeah, things like Megadog and those kind of clubs to sort of hear the music or, or further afield. The thing, Back to Basics was very um, on it in championing techno. Um, so, yeah, we, we travelled a lot. I mean, uh, broadly speaking, was the audience for techno um, quite different back then to maybe how it is now? Um, it was probably... It's probably less sexy than it is now in a way. It's a bit more male than like the orbit in Morley near Leeds. That was probably 90% men uh, sweating. So I think now it feels like, you know, with all the Italians and stuff, it's a bit more, <laughs> probably a bit more shishi than it was back then. Um, so, in terms of the club night, how did this kind of come to be? Like, when was it a decision made that there needed to be some sort of a outlet and some sort of real world outlet? Um, I think when we did the third issue of Jockey Slurp, some marketing chap from London spotted it and thought it was very edgy, uh, especially with the name, I suppose. And um, he actually gave us money to put on a club night in Manchester, um, which we called Drinking Club. And it was kind of a precursor to the Heavenly Social in the way because we had the Chemical Brothers playing. Uh, when they were called the Dust Brothers, they were like friends of ours. It was in the basement of a pub. We had a band called El Brutus on. We had Saint-Etienne DJing. And we gave away free cigarettes to everyone that came in. So it was a very, very kind of pub-based club night. Um, and and then they liked that a lot, the people who had given us the money to do it. So they gave us money to do something else. Um, that was called Disco Pogo. And we just did three of those. Um, Andrew Weatherall played Express 2, I think. Again, the Chemical Brothers. And um, that's just the 300 people each one of those nights. And the owner of Sankey's Soap, which had not long been open, came to one of those nights, Andrew Spiro. Loved loved the crowd, loved the music, thought there was something new going on with it. And um, he offered us a weekly residency pretty much that week. He was like, our Fridays aren't really working, do you want to come and have a go at it? So, um, and yeah, we literally had about a week to come up with the name Bugged Out, um, an idea, a plan, and... Yeah, it, that's kind of how it evolved. Now, how did that plan look? Uh, I remember at the time as being quite scared of giving up every Friday night for the foreseeable future. Like anything, it would probably go on for a few months, if that. But I remember that being quite a big decision, having to go, right, every Friday, this is where I'm going to be. Um, and, yeah, I mean, God, it could have been called Okie Dokie, which is what Sankey Soap wanted to call it. Uh, and we were like, please let us come up with a new name. They're like, you've got 12 hours. So, uh, yeah, luckily we came up with Bugged Out in that time. Uh, what did it What did it sort of mean to you? What, what were you looking to put across with that name? Um, the To reflect what we were really doing with the magazine. I mean, it actually came from the magazine. Christian Vogel, a Brighton techno artist, had said, my music sounds bugged out in a quote. And we were flicking through the magazine. And that's that's kind of what jumped out at us. So... 
Um, so yeah, that's where the name came from. And um, yeah, a lot of the music at the time uh, was just sounded very wonky and wiggy and bugged out, like a lot of Chicago techno from Kashmir's label Relief and. Um, a lot of the stuff of, of that time was from Detroit or Chicago, so it's very much uh, based around that music. Um, I was just sort of interested to know what, in sort of a, a slightly broader sense, what was going on um, in and around Manchester that time, and sort of like where was Sankey's in in the kind of marketplace? Um, Sankey's, I think, had been going for about six months or something, and it was in Ancoats, which was where all the dark satanic mills are, and. Um, Real rundown area. Uh, it wasn't on your doorstep, um, which I think really was half of the club in the first six months because we were always looking at the doorway for people to come in. Um, but at the same time, the people that were coming in were really quality people who just wanted to come for the the, the weird DJs we were putting on. And and over like six months, we got a very devoted following, which I think was key. If it had been in the middle of Manchester. We've got all randoms coming in, townies, whatever, and it could probably ruined it. So, um, so if, um, it was it's kind of striking to me that, um, or it, it's kind of gone down with your history that you were you were really early on some of the sort of key acts or um, acts that would later go on to kind of define the decade. I think people like yeah. uh, Daft Punk and Chemical Brothers, as you mentioned. Um, when you were booking these acts or when you were putting on these shows, did you kind of have a sense at the time that they were poised for pretty big things? Uh, I think the Chemical Brothers, definitely. I think um, because they'd done the early shows for us and they really defined their own sound and then they had the Heavenly Social Club around them in, in London, it, you know, and the, they were kind of... The enemy could get their heads around the Chemical Brothers. There was something about the way they presented themselves that was more easily sold in the rock press um uh, and we just saw them go from like you know 200 people in a sweaty basement to sort of very quickly selling out the hacienda or whatever so uh yeah they seem poised for greatness early on daft punk less so we did them um, i think we did the first ever interview in the world with them in jockey slot just because we liked their press picture and they, they were called daft punk uh the record wasn't bad as well but um uh yeah i think it, they seem to have sort of less of an impact but then when Defunct came out obviously um, that turned everyone's head so after that it was yeah these guys are going to be pretty serious uh, what was it like the the first time you booked them what was the what was the show like do you remember much about yeah, it yeah uh, I remember they were really young they are probably about 20 years old and it was at Sankey's in October 1995 and funny enough they brought Pedro Winter with them like Busy P who runs Ed Banger now and he was almost like their voice because they were so shy I remember sort of being backstage in this really cramped space and they literally wouldn't say a word and he was like their mouthpiece. Mm. I don't even think he was their manager then. I think they just needed someone to speak to people. Um, so I just remember that about them, that they're very quiet. And um, their set was probably 30 minutes long so they only had about five tracks to play. So, um, But they were very good tracks. <laughs> um, it's kind of interesting, something you uh, said about the, the kind of crossover nature of the Chemical Brothers and maybe how the rock press could get their heads around a little bit. Um, do you think that you yourselves had an air of that? Was there a kind of crossover appeal? Did you uh, like appeal to the indie kids? Um, I think Jockey's that sort of aesthetic was very much like that. Yeah, we um, we approached DJs a little bit 
like the enemy would approach a band you wouldn't just talk about how you made a record you'd talk about where do you come from what's your environment like so I think we did the first ever interview with Underground Resistance based on that because Mad Mike Banks would never speak to anyone um, and it took about three or four phone calls to convince him and when he found out we were based in Manchester he was like oh, I'm down with it because Manchester's fucked up like Detroit and uh, and he said I don't want to talk about music at all and I just remember sort of Paul did the interview and um, yeah the interview still stands up today it's just uh, it's just um, you know it's, it's, it's a black American working class very proud of what he does but doesn't want to talk about how he twiddled the knob he wants to talk about his roots and what music he grew up on and um, yeah and so I think that was kind of what Jockey Stop was very much about very much about where people where their heads are at rather than um, yeah all the boring music stuff I mean with the throughout the 90s would you say that the um, the magazine and Bugged Out were like a very closely aligned kind of thing like yeah. you know in terms of uh, artists you were booking covering I mean with it were these things like completely interwoven in your mind yeah totally I mean it was called Jockey Slut Presents Bugged Out for, for for as long as Jockey Slut was around really um, which is which was until 2004 and yeah, I mean, whoever was on the front cover of Jockey Slot would, would undoubtedly end up playing at Bugged Out. It was very much, um, very much links. I mean, did you, I mean, you talked about um, the conversation uh, more broadly in terms of being very focused on music creation, but did you, uh, did you see the tone of the chat kind of shift? Did magazines kind of change during the 90s? Or did you see a shift more towards your your perspective or your way of doing things. Yeah, I remember when uh, Music Magazine launched, that was a f- couple of years after Jockey Slut, and um, we were like, oh, we've got some competition now, because they were very much a similar kind of approach to us. Um, so yeah, it did, it did definitely evolve through the 90s. Um, so you are at Sankey Soap till 1998, yeah. is that right? Until they eventually closed. What were the kind of circumstances surrounding that? Um, I think Manchester was really blighted with gang problems in the 90s and it took a long time to reach uh, Sankey's, but when it did, it, you know, it always just had a really detrimental effect on attendance. Um, and that's kind of what happened, really. Unfortunately, so it was just a case of it then ended up on the radar of these yeah. people and just yeah 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 unfortunately yeah. <laughs> and then in terms of next moves, you were quite quickly approached by Cream. Is that right? Yeah, we we thought that was the end of it to be honest because we just there's nowhere else in Manchester for us to put the club on, um, nowhere suitable, and we did, wouldn't have even thought of going to Liverpool. But luckily, they're all nighter which was at the end of every month, which went till six o'clock, um, was sort of not doing so well. So they wanted a fresh start and they approached us. And I think we almost didn't take it because we were like, how can we, an 800 capacity underground techno club fill a 4,000 capacity space? Um, but we got our heads around it. And again, we approached it a bit like the magazine. We were like, right, the magazine now has drum and bass, it has breaks, it has house as well as techno. So there was a traditional techno room with people like Dave Clark still residing, and then we'd have a big house room, um, and then there were, were people like DJ Sneak, etc. And then there's a, a smaller room for kind of whatever I suppose was the flavour of the month in a sense. So it might have been breaks, it might have been, I don't know, yeah, the more niche stuff was in there. So it was a bit like doing a big festival in a club every month. It's similar to what the Warehouse Project is now, I suppose, in, in size and 
scope. I mean, did you have reservations over kind of aligning yourself with a brand like Cream? Because I guess ostensibly they, um, you know, stood apart, or you you had very um, differing views or approaches, if you like, to the to the way clubbing went. Yeah, um, I think Cream was still relatively cool to an extent. All right, they had sort of rooms of music that we didn't like, but they also had people like LTJ Book and playing and. Uh, Darren Hughes was still there and he was um, oh no he just left it actually <laughs> there, there was still some good stuff there anyway and it wasn't but the main thing was the venue was brilliant it was it was just like a huge warehouse space so um, we just kind of made it our own really and put our own stamp on it I mean were there I mean just thinking back to around that time when it very much was the era of super clubs and superstar DJs and the like that was kind of um, you know sweeping up everyone's attention um, do you feel that there was much of like a, a counterculture, if you like, were there people who were sort of defining themselves as being in opposition to this culture? Um, yeah, undoubtedly. It was, there was a lot of um, piss taking, you know, against kind of Cream's brand exercises. Uh, I think we ran something in Jockey Slope where we put the Cream logo on tea sets and pillows and just st- stupid things, just sort of go, this is the way it's going now. And uh, we we think it's a bit daft, but um, yeah, you know. At the same time, though, um, yeah, there were a lot of obviously DJs that were will always be resolutely underground and won't have any sort of part of that kind of thing. Even playing setting foot in the venues, but I think we kind of, as I said, we made it our own, and we people played for bugged out, not for the fact that it was in a venue that Cream was in on the Saturday. So we still had people like Surgeon playing and Harvey and. Um, yeah, a lot of people that were, were resolutely underground. What was kind of uh, the, the music, uh, or what was the music that was kind of leading what you did around the cream years? How would you kind of define it? Um, I think techno is still very much at the heart of the club. The courtyard was the, was the place where all the real loyal followers of Bugged Out would head to. Dave Clark played every month. Um, people like Richie Hort in Green Velvet, um, Surgeon were all regulars. <clears throat> Um, but the main room was, you know, house music was pretty vibrant at the time as well. As I said, people like DJ Sneak, um, Roger Sanchez used to play quite a lot as well. Um, Cassius, Basement Jacks. It was it was that era when house music kind of, you know, felt quite refreshing again. So that was the focal point for the main room. I mean, you you talked about it in terms of having um, you know some reservations to begin with, and and wondering if you could kind of transpose this older model onto this um, bigger space. Uh, did, was it successful? I mean, do you look back on that period as, as yeah. being a you know period of growth and and success? It was successful straight away, which really surprised us. Like the first night, we were well, we were lucky enough to have the Chemical Brothers headlining. So. Um, and I think the second night we had Carl Cox and Lionel Garnier, so we just we managed to get the lineups right straight away. Um, and so it was busy straight away. I still think it's quite a lot of people's favourite eras because so many people passed through the doors. Like as I said, it was nearly four thousand people a month. So um, yeah, which back then was quite something. Were there um, many others doing something that you would consider to be um, similar around the time? Uh, you know, around the UK. Um, I think London had um, similar clubs like Tribal Gatherings, Final Frontier. I think kind of Friday was a was a pretty big club. That was probably for 2,000 people. Ministry of Sound had their open nights as well with people like Derek May regularly playing. And um, 
and Kashmir and people like that. So there was there was more of a scene for techno, I think, in that era. Um, just kind of wanted to introduce Charlotte at this time. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you fit into this, and and when did you kind of um, well, when were you kind of welcomed into the fold, and what was the introduction? I came in two thousand. I finished university. I decided that I wanted to work at Jockey Slut magazine. So I got, I just basically, you know, first job out of university, didn't realise what, what you should do, just turned up, just kept turning up until Jono said I could work there. And then <laughs> I stayed on after the magazine moved to London and I worked for Bugged Out. So then I, I was only at the magazine for like, I can't remember, a year, maybe, a bit longer. And then I've worked at Bugged Out since 2000. So a while. Uh, why did the magazine move to London? Uh, the magazine moved to London because we sold it. <laughs> so basically, uh, yeah, we've been running for seven years uh, up in Manchester. And it kind of just got to a natural, we hit a natural brick wall, really. With It was still bi-monthly. Um, we didn't have the funds to make it a monthly. We didn't have the funds to really employ enough staff to sort of take it where it should be. Yeah, we used to sort of work all night regularly back then. And, you know, it's seven o'clock in the morning, taking it to the printers on the deadline. So it just got quite a strain. And um, uh, and someone looked at our uh, accounts at company's house and was interested in buying it probably at just the right time because we were, we were quite frazzled by that point because we were doing bugged out every week and trying to run this magazine as well with a shoestring staff. Uh, so when did the relationship with um, Cream Nation come to an end? Uh, in 2002, I think Cream actually left Nation. Um, Cream kind of ended as a, as a Saturday night club. We carried on a little bit with the same venue, um, but unfortunately Cream, when they, when they ended there, they ripped their sound system out or the sound system got sold. So just the club was just never quite the same and it was a sort of a slow natural decline after that. So we were like, right, that's obviously the end of that era. And at the time we were also living in London. We had been for a couple of years. So um, it just felt time to really focus on the city we were living in. Mm. Um, Sean, maybe you could talk about the, um, you know, in terms of uh, a London home. Is it, eventually you guys ended up with the end. Yeah, the end was, I can't remember the years that we were at the end. 2002. 2002 till... Nine. 2009. And that was amazing. That was like, that. I think for me, that'll always be our proper home because the venue and all the people that work there were like a family as well. Not to say that all of the other places that we do bugged out isn't amazing, but it's great to have a residency where you live and it for to be for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, did you did you feel like you pretty much had free reign and you could kind of push on things and push boundaries a little bit? I mean, did you feel like you could kind of present anybody? Um, I think the end year was kind of a, a real change for us because it was 2002 and it was um, Electro Clash was happening around that time and there's a real big shift in music. Um, I almost felt like starting again, really, kind of, you could look at a Baghdad fly from a year previous to a one in 2003 and there's a whole new raft of DJs. Uh, Errol Alcom was our resident in room two. Quite funny, really, to think he was a resident in a room that held 250 every month for a few years, but he really made that his own. And um, yeah, there's people like Tiga, Miss Kitten, Yvonne Smag, Ewan Pearson, Damien Lazarus. Boys Noise. Yeah, Boys Noise later on as well. Um, 
yeah, it was a it was a whole new kind of era for us, really, and it was really enjoyable. I think after going for so long to sort of have this massive breath of fresh air happen, uh, even just personally, I think I was a bit bored with the way things were going, and and suddenly, wham, you know, a whole new outlook on things. I mean, when did some of these artists started uh, popping up on your on your radar? Um, December two thousand and one was when Miss Kitten played first and she was kind of mind-blowing all dressed from head to toe in leather uh yeah just just the whole performance wasn't anything like what we were used to as from a dj um so it was kind of 2000 2001 it was bubbling under i think it, i think we really almost completely changed what we were about a year later so um yeah it really was kind of spring clean <laughs> i mean did you did you almost uh take a conscious decision to um undertake this upheaval in a way did you feel like uh things needed to be shaken up uh yeah i mean i think i think for a start we were just going to all the clubs where you know you could hear that music you know trash on a monday where they're all played um there's quite a lot of east end parties where you'd hear people like Yvonne smag but only playing to a couple hundred people and we just very we we adopted them just very early on, and and because um, you want to go to your own club and like what you're going to, and not go like I've got them a bit bored with this. So, but it did have quite a detrimental effect on us as well because Liverpool was still running at the same time, and we tried to enforce our new love of this music on, you know, on bugged out in Liverpool, and, and it being such a huge club, it kind of fell on deaf ears a little bit, and also it was such a London thing, I think, to begin with. Um, so, to be honest, we killed Liverpool off, but you know, not. I think we had to cancel last night because it had sold so badly. And if you look at the lineup now, it was like a who's who of, of what's what's quite big at the moment. So, um, yeah, it was uh, definitely a <laughs> new new beginning. But that's that, that's because we used to have in Liverpool the courtyard kids who would always go to the courtyard where it was the techno room. So they thought that we'd moved to London and got fancy electro clash. I mean, was there, do you think in their minds there was a bit of a, a geographical bias or something you were putting on it, kind of like <laughs> wanting to say, oh no, that's London stuff? Yeah, it was very north-south divide stuff, definitely. And, and also I think a lot of the artists only really played in London because um, it was such a global thing. It was very Berlin, New York, kind of, was, you know, the artists didn't just come from uh, Europe and, and just play in Europe, so... Um, I think they kind of ignored the North a little bit as well. I mean, how do you um, sort of reflect on that time musically? Um, I think it's kind of sad slash interesting that when um, Electro Clash does get brought up these days, they're kind of met with sneers in a way, you know, it's yeah. like, oh, that was, you know, very of its time. But, um, you know, as someone who was pushing that music or as a group who were pushing that music, um, but yeah, how do you feel about it in retrospect, kind of thing? Um, I don't think I know the kind of electro clash you mean, which is, I guess, the sort of very robotic sounding 80s um, pop song type stuff. But I think it evolved very quickly into electro house with people like T Schwartz and like Strobe. And um, even people like Ricardo Villalobos came kind of through that new era because um, techno was very intertwined with with it as well so it wasn't really just about the the robot voice stuff it was it was just like a new ushering in of people like Ellen Alien and um yeah it was a whole new new world of people sort of came through that door I think so he was uh we mentioned him earlier but um a DJ that I would still very much associate with bugged out Zara Lalkin. um when did you guys first cross paths 
that was Jockey Slot again. I went to interview him about trash <clears throat> in his bedroom in 2000, 2000 I think. And um, we hit it off. We, we became quite good friends. I weirdly went round his to make a tape for that band, The Avalanches, um, of new music. So based in Australia. And back then, he used to put stuff on a CD and put it in the post and actually send it to someone the old-fashioned way. So um, I think we were doing that. And while we were putting this mix together for them, Errol started playing loads of dance stuff that I didn't associate with him. Uh, and David Holmes, who was our resident at Fabric at the time, because we were at Fabric for two years, he pulled out that that Friday and I just sort of said to her, why don't you fill in? If you can play this kind of music, forget your indie stuff, like just play all this stuff and you'll go down really well, I think, which he did that following Friday. And um, I think he went down so well with such a breath of fresh air with the way he looked, you know, and the kind of way he put records together. It was so different. Um, and the girls absolutely loved it. No one really knew who he was. They were just like, what's going on in this room? It was in room three in the small room. And um, we often were residency on the spot. I think David Holmes lost out after not turning up that night. So, I mean, when you say kind of put records together differently, like, what do, what do you mean? Well, he was still doing bootleg sort of stuff at the time. So he's playing, you know, pop music as well as electro stuff and house music. And it was just, uh, but also he looked like one of the Ramones at the time. So everyone else looked a bit like John Digweed and wore nice jumpers. And so it was kind of quite refreshing to have someone that looked quite punky and uh, and looked like he was really enjoying himself for once. Yeah, and how he used to, um, like you'd, he'd stand on the decks and you'd see him like striding across stuff and drinking out of a bottle, which sounds really tacky now, but... And you just see so many DJs since then try and copy him. And he was like the original person that would be like swinging from stuff and then he'd like fall down to the floor and press play and it would all just come together really well. And that's all. I always remember that about Errol when I first used to watch him. Uh, do you think that's sort of symptomatic of coming from a more kind of rock-based background? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's just really natural. He was really natural about it. It wasn't like his tried thing that he was trying to make people like him or show off. It just... It just came naturally to him how he... I think I've read interviews with him where he said that he'd be, like, putting all this stuff together and, like, mixing all these things in and then he'd have no idea what was going on and he'd just press play and it would work. And I just think that's a really, like, amazing thing. That's why I think I'll always love Errol. Um, I think, in, like, in addition to Errol, it seems like um, these artists... Down the, or there have been artists down the years who uh, have come to be very closely associated with you um, whether or not they've been residents, I'm thinking people like Tiga that you mentioned, Miss Kitten, uh, Dave Clark, Green Velvet. Have you actively looked to cultivate such relationships, or do, or do you think it's just kind of been a natural byproduct of, of doing it for as long as you have? Um, I think in the early days, people like Dave Clark and Green Velvet were very closely associated with the magazine as well. So we would we'd be interviewing them every three months, booking them to play every three months and then um, partying with them at the after parties every few months. So that's where those sort of friendships sort of came from. Miss Kitten was the same. I think we interviewed her first, and then five years later we booked her, and it's like, oh, do you remember we did that interview? And it's very much kind of like that. Um, so, uh, and obviously it's such a social thing, isn't it? It's all going to a club, so you're naturally hanging out with people, having dinner with them beforehand, um, you know, having a drink with them afterwards. So, um, yeah, friendships do come out of it. Just to, to kind of bring things up to the present day, I wondered when when did Bugged Out kind of start to become more of like the the malleable 
kind of uh, modern day entity that we know it, you know, where it means many, many different things. And, you know, you have many different uh, facets of what you do. Uh, I think that's partly because the end closed in 2009. Um, so we became wandering minstrels after that to an extent. And um, we also sort of found there's quite a change in the scene in terms of um, it became a lot more about the DJs perhaps than the club night itself. So um, we'd work more closely with the DJs to sort of put together a club night with them as opposed to just booking them and telling them what time to turn up. So that that was quite a big change. Um, then also the weekend uh, uh, really opened out um, what we're about as well. In terms of the here and now, um, what does the, the sort of range of your operation look like? Like what do you have involvement with at the moment? Uh, well, we've got the weekend uh, looming. It's, it's going to, uh, the third instalment happens in Southport in a couple of weeks from now. Um, so that's our flagship event. Uh, we still have our stage at Field Day, which we love doing every year. Um, and then, um, yeah, we've just got a myriad of club nights coming up. Everything from uh, audience live show to you know another boys' noise show um, to Andrew Weatherall playing for us again in March. You know he's been playing for us since nineteen ninety five. So uh, yeah, we're very busy. And our twentieth birthday parties. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but just before we move on to talk about them, um, so. Where do you fit into this in, in present? Like, how would you describe your role, Sean? Um, I've always been bugged out, but mostly at the minute, all of my time is taken up with the weekender. I think, you know, we start so early on it, as soon as the last one's, as soon as one's finished, we'll have a little bit of time off and then start on the next one for the next year. Uh, that is generally what I am spending every day, weekend, evening planning to make it amazing for everybody we still have got very much that magazine um yeah. way of looking at things so you know uh when we did the magazine we didn't just like techno we liked drum and bass and we liked house music and we liked all the little weird mutations of everything that's kind of the way we still approach bugged out to be honest and so it's great to do the weekender because um yeah there's like six rooms to book over the whole weekend it means you can book people that you wouldn't normally book into say a london club night and yeah, 20 years of bugged out. There's a lot of people that have passed through the doors that you might not be able to look at, like, book all the time. So this has been really great to reflect that, hasn't it? We've got people that have played from the beginning to people that we've only been booking for the last couple of years. So hopefully it's a really great reflection of our history. And what was behind the uh, decision to change location this year? A few things. It was the date more than anything, wasn't it? Because we doing a... Festival on the third weekend in January is a bit like club promoting suicide, even though it was really great and really successful. Um, and also, like, our histories in the north, like, the event, Southport is an amazing venue. It's got a huge history. The rave rooms are brilliant. Uh, we were just there last week. It's really exciting that we're going to be there for the festival soon. But, um, yeah. And there was some, um, just to, to kind of go back slightly, you you actually uh, threw a weekend uh, back in 2000, didn't you? Yeah. That I had to, well, on paper the lineup was incredible, but it, it didn't go so well, right? No, it was a bit of a disaster attendance-wise, but um, it was kind of, looking back at it, we, we rushed it and it was very difficult to sort of promote things back then. Uh, you can only promote with advertising in magazines, with posters, with flyers, and... Um, yeah, there's no Twitter or Facebook, so you couldn't, it wasn't really, there was the internet, but people didn't use it in the way that they do now. 
Um, so yeah, I think the main problem was with this brilliant lineup, but no one really knew about it. Uh, and there's a few other things as well. Kind of, kind of funny that it's going on at the moment. There's flooding all over the country. It was like a nine-hour train ride to get from London to the weekender, for example. Wasn't like the train line down as, yeah. as well. So uh, yeah, did, everything was have... against us a little bit. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say, who did you book that year? Uh, Underworld, Represent, Chemical Brothers, Carl Craig, Harvey, Dave Clark, you know, Richie Horton, kind of about everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so by, yeah, today's yeah. standards, um, pretty good. Yeah. Um, so sort of in that time, would you say that your approach to curation has changed very much? Is, is the way that you sort of approach things uh, kind of differ from back then? No, I think it's always been a mixture of you know, bugged out stalwarts who we love, like Carl Craig's playing this weekend, or as is Andrew Weverall. They were both at that one. Um, but we always like to have, you know, new acts on as well. Like we just booked 10 walls for the weekend, for example. Um, back then, there would have been an act on the bill that was, you know, literally really buzzy. And, uh, you know, so I think it's always good to get that mixture of um, history with brand new things. Like Todd Turge is playing at the weekend and his album's just about to drop. So that's really exciting. Um, it sort of actually nicely leads on to the next question. Um, how do you, after 20 years of doing this, sort of keep yourself fresh and interested? Um, well, it's down to the music, isn't it? And down to uh, the audience. But it is generally sort of hearing a brilliant record like Inspector Norse by Todd Turge. It makes you go like, right, yeah, of course, this is why I'm doing this, you know. Um, or Gotham by Tamwells or, you know... Um, it is about the music at the end of the day. At the moment, it's particularly fruitful, and uh, that's why dance music is so buoyant right now. Uh, that's why when I look at the weekend lineup, me and Charlotte said the other, the other day, you know, we have a blank slate when we start the next one, and you're like, oh, what are we going to book for next year? We've just had a great lineup, and then, uh, you know, after a few months, it all comes together because the music keeps coming out, and uh, suddenly you're like, wow, it's exciting again. Mm. Uh, so you're actually marking the, the birthday around uh, the end of the year. Do you know how you're going to be celebrating at this point? Yeah, it's going to be a big uh, big event in London, a big event in Manchester, and also quite a special event in London as well, which um, will be quite intimate, but I think will catch everyone's attention. Um, I just wanted to finish up by asking you about um, what's become kind of something of a London tradition with the uh, New Year's Day party. Uh, the reason I bring it up is because I've attended a few times myself and it's kind of a, definitely a thing among my friend group. But uh, each year it seems like it's going to be the last one. And um, <laughs> that never quite proves to be the point. I was uh, wondering, like, what well, I mean, firstly, what's the sort of history of you doing the old Queen's Head? And um, secondly, what's up with the... Uh... <laughs> uh, yeah, the retirement. I mean. Yeah. Um, well, we started doing... We started doing the pub. It, it was actually the social in his intern in 2001. And New Year's Day evolved out of that. But weirdly, in London, no one did anything on New Year's Day. So even people like Rob Hives from Mother Over or Fab, the Fabric Light, they'd all come down to this pub almost to unwind. And that's kind of why we did it. We'd do a New Year's Eve party and then stay up all day in the pub playing pop records. It was very much an after party. Um, but it was very much, you know, very much a fun thing. And it moved to the old Queen's Head in 2006 and kind of became a lot bigger than I think. But the only reason we stopped it in 2011 is because, I don't know, I think when you do something for so long, you almost think, like, maybe it's time to sort of pause this. But 
uh, we missed it straight away. I think we saw a, a year elapsed and people started asking, you know, why we stopped it. And we we're like, yeah, why did we? So um, we're carrying on. <laughs>